Good evening. It is so good to be here together with you tonight. As we pulled up, it looked familiar to me, and I was trying to think the last time that I was here, and I cannot remember. I can't even remember if it was before or after my accident. And so um, it was before. Okay, I was walking last time I was here. So it is good to be back with you. We've been looking forward to the meeting. My wife is here with me tonight, and I'm always glad that she can travel. Before I say anything about the lesson tonight, I want to say something about this chair because I get a thousand questions about this chair. It is an amazing piece of technology. Number one, people always say, how in the world does that chair do this? This chair has hundreds of little gyroscopes in it, and it is constantly making adjustments to keep the chair balanced so that it can balance on two wheels. This chair also will climb stairs. One wheel will come up on top of the other and it will climb stairs, but I have to do it backwards. Uh, one of the greatest things about this chair has been, I've been in the wheelchair about two years before, my, um, before I got this chair, and I've gotten used to looking up at people, but with this chair, being able to look people eye to eye again is so good. You don't realize how demeaning it is once you are looking up at people constantly. And uh, before my accident, I was about 5'7", and in this chair, I'm almost six foot. So um, I actually gained a little bit of ground, but uh, it is an amazing piece of technology. But, you know, I tell people as amazing as it is, people say that is incredible that they are able to do that. But as amazing as it is, they can't even begin to know what to do with my spinal cord. Now, what that says is the technology of men doesn't even compare to the brilliance and the mind of God and uh, what he has created for us. So, um, tonight, what's that? My jump drive. Did it not load? All right. That's all right. Uh, let's see. I left it over here. Okay, it's going to be in one of these pockets. Let's see, if you can grab that for me. Let's see here. Apparently, the PowerPoint did not get loaded, and so uh, while they're taking a moment to do that, um, I will give you a GBN commercial. I'm glad I'll have an opportunity to do that. For the last several years, I have been working with the Gospel Broadcasting Network, and if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to uh, go online to our website, gbntv.org. If you have a mobile device, such as an iPad or any kind of a tablet, a, tele, a telephone that has a mobile capability, and just about everybody has that these days, download our app. Go into the App Store and look up GBN and download it because it has some amazing resources on it. We now have Bible commentary so that we have video that covers just about every book of the Bible. So if you would like to go and watch a particular book verse by verse, we've got it there. We also have commentaries in written form, presently covering 55, I think, of the 66 books of the Bible. Those are downloadable. If you would like to use them, you can pull it up on your tablet. They are detailed commentaries. They are very, very sound. So if you're teaching a class on a book of the Bible and you would like to use one of these commentaries, they are there and they are free. Everything that we produce at the Gospel Broadcasting Network is free, so please use those. If you want to use it just for your personal study, then you can go take that commentary, and in fact, you can listen to the audio commentary and go through the written commentary, and it will be a great resource. We've also got some things on there, such as one of our newer programs called Answering the Error, where we take uh, videos that people have submitted of denominational material, uh, religious material that teaches error, and then we play it in its entirety, and we will stop it and discuss it and give it the Bible answers. 
We've got the Authentic Christian Podcast, which is teaching first principles through the Bible. Uh, it is a great program. We've got uh, B.J. Clark's program uh, called Counterpoint. We've got Cliff Goodwin's program, Preaching the Gospel, which is also airing on DirecTV. Uh, it goes into about 40 million homes. And so a tremendous amount of good is going on through GBN. As we put our material online and people watch it, they contact us and we set up studies with them via Zoom. And so every week we're having Zoom studies with people. When they reach the point that they're ready to be baptized, we find them a local congregation anywhere in the world and we connect them with the gospel preacher so that they can obey the gospel. And I don't know if a week ever passes that we don't have at least one baptism. So I'd love to have an opportunity to tell you some more about that. But the thing about the work we do at GBN is we don't sell anything. Everything that we do is given free. And so it is supported by congregations of the Lord's Church and by individuals who would like to give to that work. If you will go and look at it and see how productive it is, I think you would say that is a work that we want to get behind. And the videos are uh, very faith-building. They're very strong, and I think you will appreciate them. We're good to go now. All right. Thank you for the commercial time. Maybe tomorrow night I'll mess up the PowerPoint or something and <laughs> have an opportunity to do that again. Tonight, we are going to discuss the question, where do we go when we die? But before we do, I wanted to show you this and that's my grandbaby. I had forgotten that that was in there, but when I saw it, I thought, we'll take a moment and uh, stall, but I couldn't stall because we didn't have the PowerPoint up, but uh, that is my oldest granddaughter. Her name is Ellie Mae, and when my daughter named her Ellie Mae, I said, uh, Macy, you know what everyone's gonna think when they hear that name, and she said, what? And I said, the TV show? And she said, um, Andy Griffith? And I said, no, the Beverly Hillbillies. And she said, Dad, only old people are going to think that. So if you thought that tonight, then that may say something about you. We're going to talk tonight about the subject, where do, you, where do we go when we die? It was 2018, and I was in South Haven, Mississippi. We were having our lectureship. It was the last night. Brother Robert Taylor was the speaker. About the time that he finished speaking, my phone rang, and it was Sherry. She was at the assisted living home with her father, and she said, my daddy is dying. You need to get over here as quickly as you can. I ran outside, and I jumped in my pickup truck, and I headed over there. When I got to the assisted living home, I walked into the room. Sherry was there, her sister, the hospice nurse, and her dad was laying there in the bed, and he was breathing erratically, just, <gasps> and the hospice nurse told me it had been that way for several hours. And she said, you need to tell him it's okay to let go. She said, sometimes when people get to the end, they just fight and fight, and they just won't let go. Tell him it's okay. So I walked over to him, and I put my hand on his chest, and I said, Frank, I'm here with Sherry. Brandy's husband, Lewis, is on the way. I said, it's okay. You can let go. Go be with the Lord. Go be with Jane, your wife. She had passed just a few months before. And it was just minutes after I said that. He breathed his last, and he settled down, and he passed from this life. At moments like that, you can't help but wonder what happens when you die. What was going on beyond our ability to see in the spiritual realm? Now, we're going to talk about that tonight. What happens when we die? Now, the religious world has given us all sorts of answers to this question. You know, some people have said, well, when you die, you are reincarnated. And they will say, if you have lived a, a really good life, then you will come back as a human being. If you've lived a really good life, you'll come back as a rich, good-looking human being. And if you've lived a bad life, you might come back as an animal. And you know, some people have the idea, don't swat that fly, it might be Uncle Ricky, that sort of thing. But of course, the Bible doesn't teach any of that. And of course, some people have the idea of ghost. That is, you die, 
your spirit or your soul will haunt a particular area. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Roman Catholic Church has put forth the idea of purgatory. That is, you die and you go to a, a waiting place. That is, if you're going to go to heaven, but you're not ready yet because you still have some sin that needs to be taken care of, you'll go to a temporary place of punishment until your debt has been paid, and then you can go to heaven. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Of course, it's very popular in our day and age for people to believe that when you die, you simply cease to exist. That's the view of the atheist, that you are no more. Your last breath is truly your last. And the Bible absolutely doesn't teach that. But you know, as Christians, we can know the answers to the question, not only where we came from, but we can know where we're going. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Where do we go when we die? Years ago, when I first wrote this sermon, I entitled it, The Soul from Birth to Eternity. The Soul from Birth to Eternity. But when I got to thinking about that, I thought, that's not really a good title because the soul doesn't really begin at birth, does it? The soul begins when? At the point of conception, right? And so I went back and I modified my chart, and this is going to be the chart we're going to use tonight. This, of course, represents the earth. This is the point we are all currently at. You see there are two arrows. One represents the saved, the other represents the lost. You see that one is larger than the other. We will come back and talk some more about that. But I want you to watch when I click this. You see the soul coming down to the earth? I added that to emphasize the fact that the soul of man doesn't start on this earth. The soul starts from heaven. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says. It's a, a verse we oftentimes use at funerals to talk about the end of life, but it tells us something about the beginning of life. It says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. God gives us our spirit. Hebrews 12 and 9 calls God the Father of spirits. And so what happens then is at the moment of conception... When the egg meets the sperm and a new life is formed, God places a soul, a spirit, in that newly formed human being. And mama and daddy give him his physical characteristics, but they don't give him his soul. God gives him his soul. And so, Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about what it means that we are made in the likeness of God, in the image of God? I think there's a lot of things entailed in that, but I think it primarily has reference to the fact that we have a soul. We are now eternal beings who will never cease to exist. Animals don't have that. We are far superior to the animals in that sense. And so we start the journey at this world. From the time that God places that soul in that newly formed human being, it's going to remain in that physical body until that person dies. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 says, For we know that if our house, this tent, is destroyed, he's talking about our physical body and he calls it a tent. He says, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 1 Corinthians 15 54 calls this body a mortal body. It refers to it as corruptible. What does that mean? This body is a tent. Why does he call it that? You know, if you go out camping for the weekend, you don't take a load of bricks and mortar, do you? You take a tent. Why? Because you're not going to be there very long. This body is a tent. Our spirit will not be housed in this body very long. It's a tent. One day, we're going to get a building. That is our resurrected body, he says, that will be eternal in the heavens. And so what that means is this. For 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, my soul dwells in this temporary body, the tent. And during that time, I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to engage my body like we've done tonight. We worship God, and we sang. We used the physical body. We belted it out with our lungs, and we used our tongue, and and we sang, we engaged our, spiritual, our, our spirits, our bodies, but really, when you worship God, where does it come from? It comes from your soul, doesn't it? 
Doesn't John 4, 24 say God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth? We engage the physical body, but the seat of worship is the soul. During that 70 or 80 years when the soul is within this body, we are going to love God, but we do it with the soul, do we not? Luke 10, 27 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. Now for that 70 years, 80 years, this body is wearing out. I want you to listen how Solomon describes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. That is, worship God while you're young. Because you're going to start to get old, the body's going to start to wear out, and it's going to get more difficult for you. He said, before the years draw nigh when you say, I have no pleasure in them, when the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened. That is, you start to get old and you begin to lose your eyesight. He says, in the days when the keepers of the house begin to tremble. What's he talking about? You get old, your hands begin to shake. The keepers of the house tremble. He says the strong men bow themselves because they are weak. What's that talking about? Talking about your legs. You get to the point that your legs are going to give out. He says, and the grinders cease because they are few. What do you think that's a reference to? Your teeth. You're going to lose your teeth. He says those that look through the windows grow dim. The doors are shut in the street. The sound of grinding is low. One rises up at the sound of a bird. What could that mean? You get older and you just don't sleep like you did as a young person. Things disturb you. The daughters of music are brought low. You begin to lose your hearing. They're afraid of heights. Why would you be afraid of heights? Well, if your legs are trembling and they might give out, you don't want to be in a high, a high place. He says there are terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms. You know what that's talking about? When an almond tree gets to the point that its leaves turn a bright gray or a bright white, he said, it's like the hair of your head. In fact, I see some almond trees out here tonight, and some it looks like the leaves have just fallen off, but the same sort of thing he's talking about. Then he says, the grasshopper is a burden. Desire fails. Some of the desires you had as a young person, they change when you get older. He says, the mourners go about the street. See, it's getting serious. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain. The wheel is broken at the well. That means you die. Now here we go. Then shall the dust return to the earth, as it were, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. That brings us to the point that we die. Now I want you to watch this when we click the next. We have a bridge that I've created here. This represents death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto men wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Sometimes I've known people that will say, or I've, I've read about people, they say that they died, and they went to heaven, and they came back, and they wrote a book about it, and they got rich. I don't believe that. You know why? Because the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. All of us are going to pass through this... Um, pathway of death one day, unless the Lord comes first. I want you to notice how I've represented two different pathways, one being narrow and the other being wide. That's because Matthew 7, 13 says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which entereth unto life, and few there be that enter in thereby. Wide is the way, broad is the gate that leads to destruction, Matthew 7, 14, and many, in fact, honestly, most, are going to enter through that gate. And so what that means is for 70 years, 80 years, my soul has been dwelling in this body. All the while, this body has been wearing out. Psalm 90 and verse 10 says, the days of our lives are 70 years. If by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off. Listen to this part. And we fly away. So you live to be 70. If you're strong, he says you might live to be 80. If you live longer, you're even stronger. But then he says, the day's going to come that you die and we fly away. That means when this body ceases to live and the soul leaves, the part of you that is really you is flying away. 
That's interesting language. Genesis 35 and verse 18 describes the death of Rachel. And listen to the language it uses. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing. You know what that is? It's the same thing as Psalm 90 and verse 10. We fly away. Her soul is in departing. It's the same thing as James 2.26. The body without the spirit is dead. You ever hear a, a medical show or, and they talk about the fact someone coded? They say that person died. The biblical definition of death is when the soul leaves the body. James 2.26. Now, our question tonight is, when we fly away, when the soul leaves the body, where does it go? Now, somebody says, well, Don, what's going to happen is you're going to get a new body at the resurrection. Well, we know that that is true. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. Right now I'm in a tent. At the resurrection, I'm going to get a body. But listen to verse 4. We who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but because we want to be further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up in life. Now, he uses some very interesting language in 2 Corinthians 5. First, he talks about being clothed in a tent. We talked about that. That's this body. It's temporary. We talked about the building. That's the resurrected body. It's eternal in the heavens. But then he talks about being unclothed. What's that talking about? Well, when my soul leaves this tent and it doesn't yet have the resurrected body, there's a period of time in which my soul doesn't have a body, and the, the Bible talks about that as it being unclothed. When is that going to happen? When is my soul going to be unclothed? That's going to take us to the next part of this chart, and that is eternity. I want you to notice this. This entire second section... This represents Hades. This represents the Hadean realm. And you need to understand the entire second section is Hades, not just the bottom, but the top and the bottom. The reason I emphasize that is people oftentimes get confused and they think of Hades as referring to hell. They think of Hades as just a reference to the place of punishment, and that's not right. The word Hades actually is a word that refers to the dwelling place of the dead. It's kind of a holding area for disembodied spirits. The good who die go to Hades, the bad who die go to Hades. I think part of the reason that we're confused about this is because the King James Version translates the word for Hades as hell. And that confuses us because that's not right. In the original, you've got two different words. You've got the word Hades, that's the dwelling place of the dead, and you've got Gehenna, which is where the devil and the wicked go eternally. And the Bible, in the King James Version, translates both of those as hell. They're two different places. Only the King James Version does that. Every other version translates it as Hades and hell. But the King James says hell and hell. You have to understand Everyone who dies goes to Hades. Now, if you don't understand the difference in these words, it's going to cause you some confusion. I'll give you an example of this. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The King James says hell, the word is Hades. What Jesus is actually saying there is... For three years he's been teaching, I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to build my kingdom. But he's about to die. And so just before he dies, he tells his apostles, he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, that is the realm of the dead. The fact that I'm going to die and go into Hades, that's not going to prevent it. I'm still going to build my kingdom. Why would he say that? Because when he dies, they might be thinking, he said he was going to build his kingdom and now he's dead. He told them, I'm going to build my kingdom and the gates of Hades, death itself, will not prevent it. Now, if you don't know the distinction between hell and Hades, it will really confuse you. Incidentally, in the New Testament, of course, New Testament's in Greek, the Old Testament's in Hebrew. The New Testament word for this place of the dead is Hades, Hades. In the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew and the word is Sheol. 
S-H-E-O-L. Sheol is Hebrew, Hades is Greek, it's the same place. It is the dwelling place of the dead. Once you understand that all people go to Hades when they die, it will clear up some things for you. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31, the text there refers to Jesus after he dies as being in Hades. The King James says, hell. Brethren, Jesus did not go to hell when he died. He did go to Hades. Remember Luke 23, 43? He said to the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. If you understand that paradise is in Hades, then Acts 2.31 and Luke 23.43 fit together. Now, in Hades, there is a place where the righteous go to await the day of judgment. There is a place where the wicked go to await the day of judgment. The best description I know in the Bible of Hades is in Luke chapter 16. It describes both compartments. Now, I want to read it, and then we're going to discuss it. Luke 16 and verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was um, laid at the rich man's gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, this is actually the word Hades, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment. He was in Hades, specifically in the area of Hades that is torment, and he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they who would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us who would come from thence. I don't know who would want to pass from them to uh, Abraham, but they can't do it. There's a great gulf. Now, let's talk first about where Lazarus was taken when he died. That is the top part of this chart. This is paradise. We are told that Lazarus died and he's carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Brethren, this is the compartment where the righteous go to await judgment. It's the place called paradise. It's the place Jesus was talking about when he said to the thief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The etymology, you know, etymology goes back to the root of a word. Where did it come from? How did it develop? The etymology of the word paradise carries with it the idea of a pleasure garden. You know, oftentimes when men are surveyed, and they ask the question, what do you fear most in this world? There's usually two things that people have at the top of the list. They fear death and public speaking. That's two things they don't like. Death is usually number one. I've thought about this many times. Could it be the reason that God has angels waiting to escort the righteous is because when we finally face that which we fear the most, God has angels waiting to say, fear not. And they escort us to paradise. The night that my father-in-law passed away in the assisted living home, he was a faithful gospel preacher for many years. I know that in that room, beyond our ability to see in the spirit realm, his spirit left his body, James 2.26, and angels were waiting to escort him to paradise. You can think about that. When a faithful Christian has passed and you go into that room, there have been angels there. What a comforting thought it is. Now, the opposite place, of course, this is where the rich man went. He lifted up his eyes in Hades, in hell, being in torment. Now, this place is the place that is called Tartarus in the original language. 
Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 when he said, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto the judgment. This place is described this way. In verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. Now listen to verse 23, because he doesn't have angels waiting to escort him. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. He dies, no escort, he opens his eyes, and he is in torture. I've got a whole sermon that I just talk about this. But I want to, just in about 60 seconds or so, give you a brief description of this place. It is a place of misery. It is a place of suffering. It is a place where it's described here that the rich man is burning in fire. He's crying out. He's begging for mercy. He believes that a mere drop of water on the tip of his tongue would give him at least a moment's relief. And I want you to appreciate with me that every person from the beginning of time until the present who has died lost in the sight of God, when they die, they go to this place. Some of them have been there for thousands of years. Some of them for months. Some of them for moments. I want you to also appreciate the fact that there is consciousness in the Hadean realm. There is a doctrine that is taught by some religious individuals called soul sleeping. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach this. They teach that when a person dies, he slips into a state of unconsciousness and he ceases to be aware. But brethren, this passage and many others tell me that when I die, I am very much aware of what's going on. The rich man, he's crying in pain. Lazarus, he's comforted. Psalm 116 and verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. I don't believe it is telling us it's precious to God when we become unconscious. I believe it is precious to God when we enter into paradise. I preached this sermon one time in a congregation or, or one similar to it. And afterwards, a brother walked up to me and he said, Don, that was a great lesson. He said, but there's a passage you need to read because... You're mistaken about there being consciousness in the Hadean realm. And he handed me a piece of paper and he walked off. Well, I unfolded it and I looked at it, very curious to see what it was going to say. And it said, Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know not anything. As a side note, that's exactly the way the Jehovah's Witnesses use that passage to teach soul sleeping. But he was misinterpreting that verse because he was pulling it out of its context. That was Ecclesiastes 9.5. If you look at 9.6, you will see the phrase, under the sun. 9.3, under the sun. 9.9, under the sun. 9.13, under the sun. All through that chapter, you see the phrase, under the sun. That chapter is talking about things that take place under the sun. Now, where is the world that's under the sun? That's not here, that's here. When he says the dead, those in the realm of the dead, don't know what's going on under the sun, he's saying they don't know what's going on back over here. In other words, when you leave this world, you no longer are aware of what's taking place back in that world. You are in a different realm. Sometimes it's popular for people to say things like this. You know, uh, in fact, there was a song that I liked back in the... 80s, 90s, I don't remember when it was, a country song by Steve Warner. It was called, There are Holes in the Floor of Heaven, and She's Watching Over Me. And the idea of the song was the man had lost his wife, and he had to raise his little girl by himself. And the day came that she is walking down the aisle to get married, and he says, there's holes in the floor of heaven, and your mama's watching over you, and when it's raining, it's her tears, and things like that. Um, Tears coming from heaven, that doesn't even make sense according to what the Bible says. But the idea is people in heaven are watching us. The Bible says that's not right. The dead know not anything that's going on back under the sun. Now, that's different from what we are commonly taught, but could you imagine being in paradise and seeing all the terrible things that are happening here? That doesn't even add up how that could be. Now, somebody says, I disagree with you about that. I can prove this. Listen to this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, King Josiah 
was told by God that he's going to bring punishment upon Jerusalem for their sins. But he said, Josiah, you're going to die before this happens. So 2 Chronicles 34, 28, the Bible says this, Surely, God says to him, Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. That is, you're going to die. Therefore, your eyes will not see the calamity that I bring upon this place. What does that mean? You're going to have gone into the realm of Hades, the Hadean realm. Therefore, you're not going to see this. You're not going to be here, in other words. One final thing I want you to notice about the Hadean realm before we move on from here. I want you to notice that there's a green line here. I've got it labeled as Great Gulf Fixed. And that's because the Bible says between paradise and torment, there's a divide, there's a chasm. The, the King James says a great gulf so that you can't pass from one side to another. That means that if you die and go to paradise, you are there to stay until the day of judgment. If you die and you go to torment, you are there to stay until the day of judgment. That means every person who has ever been unfaithful in the eyes of God, they've gone to this place, and I think about them having been there and suffering and crying. I am tormented in this flame, but it never ends. The next part of our chart is the resurrection. You can see that uh, at this point, we've got death. You've got a resurrection that's taking place from those that are in Hades. They're going to be resurrected. Those that are still living on this earth, they're going to be resurrected. On the resurrection day, we typically call this the judgment day. The Bible usually calls it the day of the Lord. Peter says, but the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. What's going to happen on that day to the souls that are in Hades? Well, on that day, listen carefully, the souls that are in Hades, they're going to leave Hades. Hades is going to be emptied of souls. It's going to give up its souls. This earth is going to give up its bodies, and then they're going to be reunited. Now hold on, because I know what you're thinking. John chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus said, For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves, that's the Greek word for tombs, shall hear his voice. And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And so what's going to happen is Hades is going to give up its spirits. This earth is going to give up its bodies. They're going to be reunited so that we have a new resurrected body and we're all going to stand before God. But this is important. The resurrected body is not going to be this physical body. It's going to be different than this body. The resurrected body is not going to be the same uh, particles, uh, for lack of a better term. It's not going to be the same uh, material, if you will, as this body. Sometimes I've had people that have expressed concern about the resurrection, and I've been asked this question. They've said, Brother Don, is it wrong to be cremated? I remember an, an elderly sister asking me that, and I said, uh, no, it wouldn't be wrong to be cremated. Why, why would that be wrong? And she said, it just seems like it's going to be a problem on the day of resurrection if you've been cremated. Brethren, it's not going to be a problem. The resurrected body is not going to be made up of the same elements of this body. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The resurrected body is not going to be flesh and blood. And if you think about it, a person who's been cremated, how different would that be from someone who died in a fire? or someone who's been dead for thousands of years and it's all deteriorated, or a person who went down in a ship and was eaten by a shark and they're, and they're gone in pieces. Cremation's not going to be a problem. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 15.44. The, the Bible says the body, that's talking about the physical body, is sown in corruption. The resurrected body is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but
But let me hit these four things very quickly. Number one, the resurrected body is going to be incorruptible. Brethren, our current bodies, they are subject to death. They get old. They wear out. They break. As I know, your body will break very easily. The new body is not going to die. It's not going to wear out. The resurrected body, he says, is going to be glorious. If we would be honest, there are many things about this current body that are lowly and that are vile, that are not glorious. He says the resurrected body is going to be raised in power. Our current bodies get tired. They are inherently weak. The resurrected body will be capable of unfailing vigor and unwearying activity. He says this is a natural body. That's a spiritual body. And so on that day, we're going to have the spirit. It's going to meet the body. It will be resurrected. Now somebody says, Don, what about the people who are still living? You've talked about the people who are in Hades, that there's going to be a resurrection. What about those of us? If the Lord came tonight and we're still here, what's going to happen? Well, we're also going to be resurrected. And verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15 describes that. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's the people in Hades, the realm of the dead. Now listen, and we shall be changed. Those of us who are still living, we're going to be transformed into our new resurrected bodies, and then we all are going to go to the judgment. That brings us to the next section of this chart, and this is the judgment bar of God. After both the good and the bad have received our resurrected bodies, we all will stand before Jesus Christ. Matthew 25, 32 says, All nations shall be gathered before Him, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Friends, all of humanity is going to be there. On that day, the rich man and Lazarus will stand before God to receive their eternal judgment. On that day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will stand before God. On that day, Ahab, Jezebel, and Judas will stand before God. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. Sometimes people will ask, What is the point of the judgment? If you've already died and you're in torment or you're in paradise, it kind of seems like you've already been judged. And so what's the point of the judgment? But you see, the judgment day... I think we misuse the term a little bit. We, we've got a misconception. We are thinking about the judgment day as a day in which God's going to weigh the facts and make a judgment so that He's going to say, okay, He gets to go to heaven, okay, no, He's, he's going to go to hell. And it's not like that. The moment you die, God knows whether you're going to go to heaven or whether you're going to go to hell. Judgment day is not a day in which God weighs the facts. We would more accurately call it the pronouncement of judgment day. It is a day in which God is going to state the reasons why you are lost or the reasons why you are saved, and then He's going to pronounce your eternal sentence. Now somebody says, but that still seems unnecessary because the righteous and the wicked, they already know where they're going to spend their eternity. I want to suggest to you that the judgment is important for several reasons. Number one, it is important for those of us who haven't died yet because we haven't been in paradise or torment. It's necessary for us. Number two, it is important so that the righteousness of God may be displayed. Now you may say, what are you talking about? The last time that the world saw Jesus Christ, He was being condemned to die as a criminal. But friends, on that day, every eye will see Him as the righteous judge. And the righteousness of God will be displayed. Number three, it is a day of exposure. The reasons why a man is lost will be stated. The reasons why a man is saved will be heralded. Friends, I don't believe there will be any person who is in heaven who doesn't know why he is there. And likewise, there won't be any person in hell who doesn't know why he is there. Why? Because they will have gone to the pronouncement of judgment. That takes us to the last part, and this is eternity. 
Matthew 25, 46, the Lord says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Everlasting, eternal. Two different words in English. It's the same word in the Greek. Why is that significant? Because the length of time for heaven and the length of time for hell are the same. They're both eternal. Sometimes people put forth the idea that if you go to hell, you just burn up and that's that. That's not so. They both are everlasting. Man has been created in the image of God. We're given a soul at the point of conception, and that soul never ceases to exist. The Greek word means eternal. Now, you see on the chart that there are two alternatives for where you will spend your eternity. One is a place of eternal bliss, that is heaven. The other is a place of eternal torment, that is hell. First, we'll look at the top. Heaven is a place for the destination of the faithful. To them, the king will say on the day of judgment, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's the place, verse 46 calls, life eternal. At the bottom, we tried to make this on the chart look like fire and brimstone and darkness. It's a place of eternal torture. It's really just torment, but it's forever. It's the descriptions of the two are very much the same. One is before and one is without end. It's the place Revelation 21.8 refers to as the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, and it's called the second death. It's the place the Lord has in mind in Matthew 25 when he says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. How long is, is hell going to last? It is everlasting. It is eternal. In fact, Revelation 14 and verse 11 says, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot think of anything that's more terrifying than that. The man who dies and goes to hell, he's got tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next year and the next millennium to suffer and to burn and to continue to exist. And with each day that passes, he's no closer to the end. At, at the point of conception, God places a soul in this body. And that soul remains in this body for 70 years, 80 years. During that time, I either worship God with my soul or I don't. I love God with my soul or I don't. My body finally wears out and my soul leaves this body. It goes into eternity, into paradise or torment, where it awaits the day of resurrection. We'll all come before the judgment bar of God and then on the pronouncement of judgment day, we will all be sentenced to our reward or to our eternity. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, it's a true story, and then I'm going to extend the Lord's invitation. Several years ago, I was preaching in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was near the end of the years I'd been preaching there, and on a particular Sunday night, we had a brother show up to the worship service. He'd not been there in months, and his family had not been there either. On that night, I got through preaching, and I walked out the back, and I was going to stand at the door to shake hands, and I saw him sitting in a chair in the foyer, and he just had his face in his hand, and I thought, he's going to repent tonight. Something's eating at him. I shook his hand. We talked for a minute, but he didn't repent. The next morning was Monday morning, or it might have been Tuesday morning. Anyway, he got on his motorcycle to go to work, and it was raining, and he was not wearing a helmet. As he was going down the road, we don't know exactly what happened, but someone said they think that a car might have hit the rear tire of his motorcycle, and it made him lose control, and his motorcycle hit the ground, and his head smashed the pavement. They called a helicopter to come and get him, and they flew him to MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina. They called his wife and his family. They called the elders of the church, and they went to the hospital. I believe I was out of town at the time, but one of the elders was there, and he told me what had happened. He said the man's wife got there, and she was next to him, and as he was in the bed, 
He couldn't communicate. They didn't even know if he could hear. But she held his hand and she said, I'm going to say a prayer right now. And she said, if you can hear me and you agree, I want you to squeeze my hand. And she said, Lord, please forgive my husband. Please make him right with you so that he can be right in eternity. Why was she doing that? I'll tell you why. Because she was desperate. She didn't know what else to do. She knew that he was a Christian, and she knew that he was unfaithful at the point of the accident, and she was desperate to try anything to fix the situation. She said, I think he squeezed my hand. The doctors will tell you it could have been a reflex. They don't know. Why am I telling you this? That man was in his 40s when that happened. When he came to services that Sunday night, and he said in the foyer, I am convinced that he was thinking, i got to get my life right. Why else was he there? Why did he seem so distraught? I'm also convinced that he left that night thinking, I will do it later. I'm a young man. I've got plenty of time. Now, as a Christian, if his mind was still functioning after he hit the ground, he could have prayed to God and he could have made it right. And I don't know the answer to that question. Only the Lord knows the answer. I hope that what happened was he was able to make things right with God and that on the day of judgment, I will see him in eternity. But I don't know the answer. But I'm saying it to you tonight because if you are here and your life is not right with God, you still have an opportunity to change it. Where he is now can't be changed at this point but you can still affect your eternity. If you are not a member of the one church we read about in the Bible, you can fix that tonight by obeying the gospel, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. You might say, I don't know what you're talking about. I need some detail. Come forward and we'll set up a study. Maybe you're here tonight and you know exactly what to do and you're ready to be baptized tonight. Come forward and we will be, we'll baptize you. Someone will baptize you. Maybe you're like that brother was, and you're unfaithful, and you need to make it right tonight. Don't leave here tonight without fixing the situation, because you never know. When you pull out of here, you don't know if a truck is going to strike your car, and you might lift up your eyes in torment, thinking, I just heard a sermon about that. And it will forever be too late. Where do we go when we die? The answer depends on where you are when you're living. If you were to die tonight and you lifted up your eyes, what would you see? Would you open your eyes tonight to see angels escorting you into paradise? Or would you open your eyes in torment, knowing that it is too late?